This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome to the award-winning Thoughts from a Page podcast, a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network, hosted by me, Cindy Burnett, a voracious reader and book columnist who provides you with casual author conversations and book recommendation episodes, as well as insider information on all of the newest releases that I personally endorse and on the publishing industry in my behind-the-scenes series. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I find the best ones and share them with you. For more book recommendations, to find my backlist of interviews, or to check out my summer reading guide for 2023, visit my website at thoughtsfromapage.com. There is also a link to the summer reading guide in the show notes. I am thrilled to announce that I have launched a new Patreon level for those interested in accessing even more unique bonus content. My original level, called Page Turners, still includes my popular Early Reads program, where patrons have access to monthly early digital reads through NetGalley, and exclusive pre-publication author chats, as well as monthly bonus episodes and fun surprise content. My new level is entitled Lit Lovers and includes all of the page turners benefits, as well as access to my new Traveling Galley program, where patrons have early access to at least three to four new titles a month that are in print galley form and are passed along to other members, a monthly fiction-nonfiction pairing episode, a monthly episode containing bonus spoiler-filled interviews with three authors, and finally, read-alike requests via email. Lit lovers can send me a book they loved, and I will respond with similar titles. This was such a popular and time-consuming add-on for me that I am moving it off of my main show. My true love is author conversations, and I want to be able to keep that focus on the show. Today, I am chatting with Danielle Trissoni about The Puzzle Master. Danielle is the New York Times bestselling author of three novels and two memoirs. She is a graduate of the Iowa Writers Workshop, and winner of the Mishner Copernicus Society of America Fellowship. Her work has been translated into more than 30 languages. I hope you enjoy our conversation. And now for a quick break. For the last year, I have been focusing more on my health and my eating habits. In connection with that, I have started drinking AG1 in the morning. I first gave AG1 a try because I needed more energy. Since drinking AG1 daily, I have definitely felt more energized. Not only does AG1 deliver my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and more, but it's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day. I know with AG1, I'm giving my body high-quality nutrition. Every batch of AG1 goes through a rigorous testing process, so you know it is safe. And AG1 ingredients are sourced for absorption, potency, and nutrient density. AG1 is the supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and I am really happy to have them sponsoring my show. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash thoughts from a page. That's drinkag1.com slash thoughts from a page. Check it out. Welcome, Danielle. How are you today? I'm doing so well. Thank you for having me. 
Cindy, it's great to talk to you. I'm thrilled you're here. Pamela Klingerhorn comes on my show periodically with Mary Weber O'Malley, and they talk about upcoming seasonal reads. And Pamela was raving about your book. And it sounded so good to me that I immediately tracked it down and read it and just loved it. So I'm so glad we're chatting. Me too. And I'm so glad that Pamela Klingerhorn recommended it. She's a national treasure in the book world, in my opinion. I follow her on all of her social media channels and like I'm constantly watching what she's reading because she has such excellent taste and she reads so much. I mean, I'm sure you read just as much, but (laughs) she's one of those people where I'm like, oh my goodness, how do you read so much? I don't think I read anywhere near what she reads. I read a lot, but I mean, I can't even imagine how much she and Mary both read. And they are both treasures. I follow their social media accounts because they're great indicators for what's coming up. So it's just one more path that I use to find what's coming up in the next five to six months, know what to look for and all of that. So yes, they they are both wonderful. I think I'm going to go and follow Mary too, because I don't follow her now, but I'm, I think I'll get in touch so I can be totally up to speed. Exactly. And I think she's Blurb Your Enthusiasm on Instagram. And I think she's her own name on Twitter. But they're very, very useful and helpful with knowing what's coming up and just such wonderful figures in the literary world. Well, it really does take a whole network of people, doesn't it? Um, It feels like right now, like reading is really about getting recommendations and and staying on top of things with, with people who are reading constantly and doing podcasts. In one ways, it's like easier than ever to find new books. And on the other hand, it's harder than ever. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's how I feel. I think that's exactly right. There are more channels for finding books, but there are also more books. And so I just think trying to figure out what will work and and all of that is difficult. And I just completed my summer reading guide for 2023, which was a true labor of love and took so incredibly much time, but I love doing it. It's my favorite thing I do every year, but I vetted over 200 plus titles and I was thrilled to pieces that I loved The Puzzle Master so much and it's on my list. I will link it in the show notes to this show, but I just thought it was such a compelling book and I can't wait for readers to find it. Thank you so much for for including it. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, before we dive into my questions, why don't you give me a quick synopsis of The Puzzle Master for those that won't have read it yet? Sure. So the book revolves around uh, an ingenious puzzle master um, named Mike Brink, who has a kind of miraculous ability to solve puzzles of all kinds. And I can get into later how that arose, but he is called to a women's prison in upstate New York because a psychiatrist has found a mysterious, strange, very perplexing puzzle that one of the prisoners has drawn. So she brings him up to the prison to try to figure it out. And as he starts to unlock it and solve it, he gets pulled into this mystery that is sort of in tandem with the prisoner, a woman named Jess Price, who's been in prison for five years, but has refused to talk about why she's there. Has refused to talk at all, right? Has refused to talk at all. I think, you know, if I remember my own book correctly, she did say a few things to her first psychiatrist and then completely clammed up. (laughs) Okay, I'm trying to remember too, because I read it a, a month or so ago, but I just know she hasn't spoken much since she's been at the prison. Right, right. She's uh, she's basically refused to defend herself. And, you know, there was a trial. She refused to speak there. And she's not saying anything because of the circumstances under which the crime was committed. And that's exactly what Mike Brink, as he starts to unravel this puzzle, discovers. 
And there are obviously no spoilers, so we can't really talk about it. But I will just say that ending, I got to the end and I was like, <laughs> oh, my goodness. It's not really an ending you're going to predict in the first couple chapters. That's for sure. I agree with that completely. Well, let's talk about how in the world you came up with this story. There are so many different parts and components and just fascinating topics. How did you come up with each idea and then weave them together? So you're right. There are a lot of components and I kind of think of it being like a puzzle in some in some ways, right? Um, you move in and the pieces come together slowly. But I began with the the woman who is in prison. Her name is Jess Price. And I began with the dilemma or the puzzle that she um, has drawn. And I don't want to give too much away, but we go back in time into um, what happened to her. And we see that she discovers in a, a house in upstate New York, a sort of old um, 19th century mansion, she discovers a porcelain doll. And this porcelain doll is sort of the key to the whole novel. Um, I'm not going to say exactly what happens, but what what happens to her with this porcelain doll just sets the whole thing in motion. So I began with her and I realized after I wrote her sections that I wanted to have someone who came into the novel and could unlock that mystery. And the character of Mike Brink, this puzzle constructor, just came to me. So his sections came next. Um, I guess I should say, you know, the book is has three different sections and they're woven together, you know, pretty much throughout the book. It's not like there's like an entire section of one thing. But and so Mike Briggs sections came next. And then um, there's this backstory that's set in 19th century Prague that's connected to the porcelain doll. And that was uh, the sort of the last section that I wrote. So those are all the pieces. And, and it, you know, it feels like when you look at them from a remove that they might not fit together, but hopefully by the end they do. And I, I think from reactions I've had from readers, people feel like they come together. Oh, I absolutely feel like they come together. And it just takes a while, just like any story. You have to get into it and understand, okay, this is where she's going with this. This is what's happening here. But I will say, I will never look at dolls the same way again. Between your book and Grady Hendrix and the puppets and dolls earlier this year, I'm like, okay, dolls and puppets, I'm out. Yeah, no, totally. I loved, you're talking about Grady Hendrix's um, How to Sell a Haunted House. And it's a book that I really enjoyed too. So I have always been fascinated by porcelain dolls and I couldn't quite define or like figure out why they made me feel so kind of creepy. But after I wrote about them and started talking about porcelain dolls, a lot of people have told me they have that same feeling. <laughs> Definitely. It's unsettling, you know? Right. It's unsettling. It almost feels like, and who knows? I mean, but there's some sort of maternal thing too, right? Like it's almost like the creepy side of, of motherhood. Um, and Because a lot of women that I know are really both fascinated and, and repulsed by dolls. Yeah, I guess that's it. I don't know. But like I said, after reading your book, now I'm going to be like, okay, that doll can't stay in the room with me if I'm ever someplace with the doll. <laughs> I'll be like, okay, clear the room. But no, I loved that storyline. That was very interesting. And I really liked the storyline that's said in the past because it's written in letters. And so I always love reading letters. And I felt like that was a clever way that you brought that story into the book. Yeah, thank you. I wanted to find a way to bring the the past into the present without it feeling too mannered. Also, the book opens with a very quick kind of flash into the 19th century. It opens with a piece of that letter. 
And so um, the only way that I could think of weaving this story into the book in a kind of holistic way that didn't feel forced was to break it up and have letters like that. But I, you know, I'm fascinated by the epistolary novel. And, and I think actually looking back, all of my novels have had a letter or a journal of some sort in them, because I like the, the way that that allows you to sort of address the reader in first person from that character's point of view. So yeah, I really like that, that technique. You can impart knowledge that way that you couldn't other ways. And I love that technique too. I love epistolary novels and I love the update of them now at this point too, with other stories where there's text and Instagram and Facebook posts and transcripts and all of that. That just seems to be more common these days. And I always really enjoy that. It'll interrupt the flow of the story, but in a good way. Yeah, I think so too. And it's interesting because I remember a point when people were like, oh yeah, cell phones are going to completely destroy fiction, (laughs) right? Like, because people can just call, like in the 19th century, no one was calling to get information um, from their cell phone or like looking at a GPS map to figure out where things, how things moved. But actually it's opened up a door to lots of interesting ways to have information come in. And it's almost more interesting in some ways. I really enjoy it too. And speaking of opening the book, I have a galley, so I know these letters do not get included in the final copies. But when I opened the galley, the very first thing for me was this beautiful letter from you. And there was one sentence that has stuck with me, and I'm just going to read it really quick. And it says, dear reader, and you have an introductory sentence, and then you say, we are about to embark upon one of the most intimate experiences two people can share. My words intermingling with your imagination. If that sounds rather intense, well, that's because it is. Reading is a bond between an author and a reader one that can survive a lifetime. I cannot tell you how much I love that. And I've thought about it so many times since I read your book. It's just such a beautiful thing. I wish that that letter could go out into the final copy of your book. Oh, you know, I wish it could too. I think that that would, you know, maybe I could put something at the very end. I don't think that they would let me, but yeah, that that sentiment is one that I've had for a long time because thinking back, really, you know, a large part of who I am it was shaped by reading and and by authors that I discovered, you know, at various points in my life. And I feel like every now and then I, you know, I hear a line or I hear a character um, from one of those books. And it's really, it is, it is very intense and very important and something that stays with us over our lives. And I feel like those stories all become a part of me so that I'm just gathering story after story after story, character, settings, places, all of it. So I just thought that you encapsulated that sentiment so well in those sentences. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I hope that um, maybe, maybe you know what? Maybe I'll post that letter on my website. People can see it there. <laughs> oh, that's a great idea because I do know those letters never make it into the final copies and they're always one of my favorite parts of the galley. Either it's the author letter or the editor's letter or the publicist's letter. And they're so much fun because they impart knowledge that I'm not seeing elsewhere, but they don't ever make it into the final copy. So that's good. But I think your website's a great place for it. So Mike Brink has sudden acquired savant syndrome, which I was completely unfamiliar with until your book. And you have a note also in the front of the book saying that is an actual syndrome. So can you tell me more about that? Sure. So Mike Brink's puzzle solving abilities aren't something he was born with. He was just a regular person until he was 17 and he had an accident. And he experienced a traumatic brain injury that damaged the left hemisphere of his brain and developed, as you said, um, sudden acquired savant syndrome. And this syndrome, when I discovered it, completely blew me away. It's an actual syndrome, given not many people in the world have been diagnosed with this. 
but it is a real thing. And what it does is it changes the brain in a way that people who didn't have a certain ability suddenly acquire it. So for example, some people who have this acquire an amazing ability to play music, you know, symphonies, you know, they compose symphonies suddenly when they weren't playing music before or do art or learn languages very quickly. And Mike Brink's ability is mathematics and puzzles and patterns. He has synesthesia as a result, which sort of plays into his ability to see patterns and, and remember sort of vast quantities of information that he didn't, that he wasn't able to do before. So yeah, that, that as a device um, in the book was really interesting for me. And I loved how it changed his character and gave him this depth that I think that just like if, you know, I introduced someone who was just a savant, like he's always been that way. He's just a strange freak of nature, you know, born with an ability to remember 20,000 pie places, no problem. I think that it wouldn't be as fascinating. I like the ability to compare who that character was as a normal person like you and me, and then as someone who is dealing with something that's both wonderful and at the same time, really debilitating. He struggles with it. I just thought he was so fascinating. And on top of that, and understanding the syndrome, all of the puzzle information and puzzles that were included were so much fun. I'm not really a crossword puzzle person, but I do love other types of puzzles so much. And so I really enjoyed that component of it. But the nice thing about the way you did it was, if you enjoy puzzles, you can do them and you can participate with that. But if not, you can look at the puzzle and keep going and it doesn't hinder the reader at all. Totally. Like I'm someone who likes puzzles too, but if it's something that's going to, you know, sort of stop me in the middle of a book, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to just keep going. Also, I was thinking about the audiobook, right? Because um, there's no way you could have a puzzle like that in an audiobook. So the way that I wrote these plot points is that I worked with these two ingenious puzzle constructors and they helped me design puzzles that would sort of work as plot points in the book. And I put them at strategic points throughout the novel. But as you say, you can sit and take out a pencil and, you know, if you have a hard copy of the book, like, you know, sort of put in the numbers and, and solve it. Or you can read the next paragraph, which has essentially the solution and on, you're on your way. Exactly. So you do not have to be a puzzle lover, but if you are, you will think it's really fun to go in and try to investigate and solve the puzzle. I bet these two puzzle constructors thought it was really fun to work with you, something a little different than what they normally do. I think they thought it was fun, but I also think that I, they probably thought it was kind of a pain. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, no, thank you. I mean, they're great. They're complete professionals and they do, you know, they construct puzzles all the time. But what was interesting about this process, especially for one crossword constructor named Brendan Emmett Quigley, he's not used to working with narrative, right? So we had to like take the story and, and fold it into his process in a way that he could come up with a puzzle that would work. Um, so there was lots of phone calls, lots of back and forth, like me sending a puzzle or him sending a puzzle, me sending it back and us working together on it. So um, I hope he had a good time. I, I really did. It was great for me. So in addition to the puzzle research, what other research did you do? Oh, so much. So the book, um, as you know, has a lot of sort of elements that surround Kabbalah and Jewish mysticism. And I didn't know anything about this before. So I worked with a woman who is a Hebrew scholar and, and you know, she pointed me in the right direction, 
you know, with books to read. And then she also read what I wrote after I wrote it to make sure that it was all correct. So there was that. And then the history of porcelain, because the doll that's found in this house is a porcelain doll. And there's this whole history that I didn't know about, about porcelain, the construction of porcelain and how precious it once was. And it's placed sort of in the history of art. Um, so that was a rabbit hole that I went down and, and stayed in for quite a quite a while, a couple of months of that kind of research. And again, I spoke with a woman who is a, a scholar, a porcelain scholar, and she worked at Sotheby's and she, you know, sort of walked me through the process of how the dolls were made and pointed me in, in the right direction to do more research. And then, you know, of course, the puzzle element, I did lots of research about the puzzles. And um, there is another element, you know, about God, the, the subtitle of the book is the God puzzle. And so there's an element about the nature of God that's in the book as well. So there was a lot. <laughs> I mean, that's just, I could keep going, but there was a lot of research. And luckily I love to sort of pile books around me and, and spend an afternoon, you know, reading and taking notes for the book that I'm working on. But I could see, you know, if someone didn't enjoy that process, that it would be really, really hard. Do you do all of your research for the most part and then sit down to write? Or do you write? And then realize, okay, I need to fill in a little bit here and research, or how does that look like for you? So I do it simultaneously. I write and I do the research. So if I'm in a scene, for example, like with the puzzle master, there's, you know, a section set in Prague in the 19th century. And I've been to Prague actually, so I could draw on that experience. But when I was writing this, I would have, you know, like a picture, you know, pictures of Prague in front of me. And I would have books about the food that people ate in Prague sort of sitting on the side. And, you know, I go back and forth between my computer and writing and then looking things up. So it's simultaneous. And you have three different sections in the book. Did you write each one separately knowing they were going to be woven together? Or did you just write in the order that we see in the book? That's such a good question. So I wrote, I didn't write them in order. I wrote the Jess Price section in, in this house upstate where she finds the doll. I wrote that section first. And when I finished it, I realized the scope of the book, right? At first, when I started writing that section, I wasn't quite sure what the book was going to be. I just knew that I wanted to write something about a porcelain doll and about this character, Jess Price, and what happened there. And it was after I finished that section. So I did write that all in one piece. And then I went to the beginning and wrote from the beginning all the way through and then got to the Prague section and wrote that. So it was all in it was pretty much all in pieces and then weaving it together is sort of the the you know the hard the hard part of all of this process. I'm someone who loves to write a big messy first draft and in lots of pieces and I have paper I write by hand. Oh wow. Okay. I can send you some pictures. I have stacks and stacks of I write um with a with a pen on like a legal pad, a yellow legal pad. So I have stacks of pages sort of sitting around. And it, what I love about it is that it gives me a kind of freedom to just make a mess. And I'll write many, you know, many pages that way. And then I can take them, type them into a Word document. And it's like, a, it's like solidifying it, right? Like I move things around and I, I put the sections in order and I revise each, you know, each sentence. So it's really, you know, a process the way that it goes from, my imagination into my computer. As you input it into the computer, do you make edits then or do you get it all inputted and then start to mess around with it? Oh, I'm making edits the whole time. So like if I'm 
transcribing, uh, you know, from a page that I've handwritten and I don't like a sentence, I'll just change it as I'm typing it in or, you know, I'll add it. Sometimes I even do, you know, and this is, this is really getting into the nitty gritty of the writing process. But if I'm transcribing something and I have a couple of versions of a paragraph, I'll write all three of them, for example, in the document so that I can look at it later and see which one I like best. Which way the story flows the best. Which way it flows, like which um, sort of perspective. For example, what something I like to play with is when in third person, when you move between characters' points of view, it's fun to try it out in a different point of view and see which one works. And sometimes I'll just keep those until I do, you know, go back and do another, another edit. Okay, that's so interesting. I'm still just totally mind boggled that you handwrite it all out first. <laughs> I know I do. For some reason, it's easier for me. I don't know. People have different approaches. I think because I started writing as a teenager and I wrote in notebooks and I wrote with a pen on paper and that just feels really natural to me for some reason. And it feels impermanent, like it's totally malleable. And for some reason, when I'm typing something into a Word document, it feels more solid and and like I can't change it. I know, I know that's totally ridiculous, but that's just the the way that I feel. Also, I like draw, I draw in the margins and I, you know, I make drawings. So it's kind of a silly process doing the first draft and it's a lot of fun. I think that's great. The number one thing I have learned through this podcast is how many different ways authors create their books. And I think that's wonderful. Whatever path is what works for you is what you should definitely do. It's always so fascinating to me to learn a different path. And I don't really love to write like, like handwrite, like my hand just gets tired. I have terrible handwriting. So I would be like, okay, I'm done after like a page. But I think whatever works for you, it sounds perfect. And I get that, that idea that like once you've typed it in, it seems more permanent, especially for some of us that, you know, started out writing and and not always, you know, the typing was on the typewriter and it kind of was permanent or at least a lot more permanent than the computer is. Yeah, I feel like it gives me a like a free pass somehow. Like I feel almost like if I'm just writing it out on a legal pad with a pen, it's kind of just still in my imagination. I don't know. That's that's. Maybe it's not totally logical, but it feels it feels like the right way to go. I think whatever works for you, you should keep doing because the Puzzle Master is fabulous. What surprised you the most when writing the Puzzle Master? You know, the whole thing was a surprise, <laughs> to be totally honest. Um, I think I mentioned that I started with this one section that was, you know, about a young woman named Jess Price, who was a writer who went to a house upstate New York um, to write a book and ended up having this kind of crazy experience with this porcelain doll. The fact that it opened up from there into um, the character of Mike Brink, who personally, like, this is one of my favorite characters that I've ever created. And I've just sort of fallen in love with this character. So for me, it was surprising that the way that it moved for me as the writer, like how it unfolded. And then, you know, for me, the the supernatural elements, there is, you know, my editor who is really great with words says that the book has an effervescence of the supernatural. And I think that that's a great way to describe it. There's a little bit of supernatural that comes out sort of at the end. And that was surprising to me too. I wasn't sure that that was going to be there from the beginning. So I think, you know, the story elements surprised me. But for some reason with all of my books or the books that, you know, have been published, I should say, the process of writing always brings out something that you don't expect. And I feel like writing is a way of exploring, you know, my subconscious and how I think and what I've read and who I am in a way that nothing else can do because I'm always surprised. 
And you mentioned Mike Brink, and I just thought he was such a stellar character. Do you think he will figure in another one of your stories? So I'm writing another novel with him in it right now, actually. Yay. Yay. I know. I couldn't, I liked him so much as a character that the idea of sort of putting him away and starting something else wasn't appealing. Um, And so as soon as I finished this one, I started another one. And this time Mike Brink is going to Japan where he's been asked to open a Japanese puzzle box. And of course he gets ensnared in a big adventure once he opens the box. That is the best news. I am so excited that there will be another Mike Brink story. And have you found that there's anything that you included in the Puzzle Master about Mike Brink that you're like, oh, I wish I hadn't said that because now I'm stuck with it in this second book? <laughs> That's such a great question. Not yet. The, you know, the one thing that I that I find that I'm playing with with Mike Brink that I'm trying to figure out my limits is one element of his traumatic brain injury. You know, he has these sort of superhuman abilities to solve puzzles. At the same time, he is sort of left with a social anxiety and an inability to really connect with other people. And that's the one thing that I'm playing with, like how traumatic is that for him and how much does it cut him off from other people? That's one element in the next book that I'm really looking into. I think when people are so incredibly intelligent that it puts them on almost a totally different plane than most humans, it is hard to connect with them because you just don't have that much in common. And you're operating so quickly, or at least Mike Brink is operating so quickly, and everybody else is moving at a much slower pace brain-wise. And that's got to be difficult for him and just be a bit of an offset. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. He's sort of in this other sphere, right? But I think as readers, you know, me as a reader anyway, I want to connect to the characters. And so bridging where he is um, sort of as a character and what the reader wants from that experience of connecting with him is something that I think a lot about while I'm writing and also how he connects with the other characters in the book, right? It's important for me. I mean, in The Puzzle Master, one of the sort of central emotional connections that Mike Brink has is with Jess Price, and he feels very connected to her. And it's so special because he doesn't feel that way very often. It's really hard for him to connect to another person. And so that um, is something that I want to be able to carry forth, right, in in, um, other books about that character. But yeah, I mean, it it poses a challenge as a writer. It's an interesting one, and it's one that I'm glad I have, but it's something that I have to think about. Well, and I think connection is something that we've all focused on even more after COVID because we realized as we sat home and didn't connect with people as much or at least didn't connect in person with them and were much more isolated, what a difference that makes and how it can really impact people. So I think that the idea of connection and how important it is is something that is in the forefront of our minds. And it's always something I enjoy reading about. That's one of my favorite themes in novels is is connection. Yeah, me too. And I really wanted that to be sort of the primary flaw or uh, problem that Mike Brink is dealing with is how he can connect. And so, you know, I don't want to give anything away, no spoilers, of course. But, you know, by the end of the book, his connection with Jess Price is very different than in the beginning. And so it's a question like, does that continue? Is he able to maintain that? It's, you know, those are all questions that I'm continuing to think about. I cannot wait to read this book. I know I have to wait a while, but I'm like, oh, this is so exciting. So I'm so glad that we got to talk about that. Me too. Well, what about the cover? As you probably know, I'm a huge title and cover person. So tell me a little bit more about how this stellar cover came about. 
I love the cover. I'm glad that you brought it up. <laughs> it's really just so stunning. Oh, the the art department at Random House deserves like some sort of award for the cover. They managed to take this element that I was describing of this kind of effervescence of of the supernatural. And there's also a sort of element of sort of a quantum physics in the book. I don't, you know, I didn't really mention that before, but it's there. And I feel like they were able to weave it together in the cover. It's these sort of flowing, folding quantum waves in like gold and red. And then there's the title, which with the hardcover will be in foil. So it will kind of pop. And then at the center of it is Mike Brink sort of running out of this, <laughs> this chaos of waves. But I feel like it gives a sense of, you know, how dynamic the book is, but also that sort of mystical element or like uncertain, mysterious element that the book has. So I really feel like the cover captures it. Was it hard to get to this cover? Was this the first thing they came up with or did you all go back and forth? What was that process like? Oh, I feel like you've heard about the 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 cover process before. <laughs> no, it wasn't the first one. I feel like it's never the first one. I think we went through like 15 covers. Really? Yes, I know. And I was sort of at the end, I was just despairing, right? Because we kept, they were good. They were okay, right? They were, the covers were okay, but none of them were speaking to these sort of unique elements in the book, or they weren't speaking to the genre, which, you know, this book is a sort of, it's a thriller that has, you know, some sort of literary and supernatural elements. And I, we wanted, we very much wanted the cover to telegraph that. And we they just were not coming. And then finally, one day, this cover arrived in my inbox, and I was like, "Oh my god!" It was just perfect. It was it was totally perfect. And so, um, yeah, we stopped there, and and the rest is history. I think so many factors go into a cover, and there's so much talk about the genre and the marketing aspects of a particular genre. So when you have a book like this that doesn't really squeeze into one particular genre very well, it's probably a little more work for the cover department to think about, okay, how can we capture the essence of this book, but also make sure we're making the sales department happy? Well, that's totally it. So what happened was the sales department vetoed the final cover that they had chosen, right? Because it was not, the sales department didn't like the fact that it was not speaking to thriller readers. You know, the other one looked more literary. And you're right, this book is, it is classified as a thriller. So we have that, but there are elements of this book that really are not classifiable, right? Like the the writing is somewhat literary and the there's some historical fiction elements in it and you know there's the thriller and then there's a you know as some of my the blur you know the blurbs I have point out there's a little bit of of a horror element like a Stephen King element in it with the with the doll section. So yeah, you're right. I think Capturing that is extra, a lot of extra work for the art department. And so hats off to them. They did it and we've got it. Definitely. I have the galley version, as we discussed earlier, and my title has all of the quantum waves flowing through it, which is very cool as well. But I can't wait to see the finished copy with the gold foil letters. Yeah, it's really, it's beautiful. The, the quantum waves still flow through, but I think that they're obscured a little bit by that foil. Well, either way. It sounds very creative. Well, Danielle, before we wrap up, what have you read recently that you really liked? Okay, so I am in a writer's group. I get to read the work of amazing writers before anyone else does, sometimes even before their editors. <laughs> and so I wanted to introduce two books that 
are by two authors that are in my writers group. One is by a writer named Jean Kwok and her book, The Leftover Woman, which is coming out um, this fall. And the other one is Angie Kim, Happiness Falls, um, which is also coming out this fall. And both of these women are in my writers group and I got to read drafts of these books and they're wonderful. So I highly recommend them. Both of those books are high on my list. I have started Angie Kim's. I got pulled away for something else, but it is such an interesting premise and I cannot wait to read Jean's as well. Oh, you're going to love them, I'm sure. Great. Well, Danielle, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really cannot wait for everyone to read The Puzzle Master and I appreciate your time. Thank you, Cindy. It's been a real pleasure. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. I would love to connect with you on Instagram or Facebook, where you can find me at Thoughts From A Page. If you enjoy this show, please consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. If you have a moment to rate the show, or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts, I would really appreciate it. It makes a big difference. And please tell all of your friends about Thoughts from a Page. Word of mouth does wonders to help the show grow. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. All right, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I've never done it. (laughs) Right.